Michael Bungay-Stanier, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Yeah, so have I. I, you know, I get a lot of, uh, a lot of books get sent my way these days, which is awesome. I'm super grateful for starting a <laughs> podcast. It's one of those things you start um, getting books sent to you, which is wonderful. Yeah, um, yeah. But I have to say, a, a lot of them are kind of vaguely interesting, but don't really pass the, I'm going to read the first few pages of the introduction section and end up, you know, in a pile somewhere. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of mediocre books in the world, I think. <laughs> I'm totally with you on that. You're like, you know what? I'm delighted you've written a book, but did it have to be a book? <laughs> really? <laughs> right. Could have been a 10-page blog post. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And anyway, that's, you have a new book called, the, the, the main title is rather modest, How to Begin. Um, yeah. But the, the full subtitle, which I love, possibly the longest subtitle I've ever seen on a book. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and just read it because yeah, I think yeah. this would be a good introduction to people. Um, how to Begin, and I'm picking it up right here. This book starts now, right here on the cover. You know why. You know that you have more to contribute. You want to shake things up and make a difference for yourself and for the world. You want to learn and grow. You want to be a force for change. You're ready to begin. Open the book and start doing something that matters. Yeah. I, 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 th I tend to think the subtitle is just start doing something that matters, but I will totally take it as that's the whole thing. Um, but I did, one of the things I, I love about this book. I, I looked on Amazon. <laughs> that that is you. You are correct. The author. You are correct. It is that is the official subtitle. But I, I sort of like the long version as well. I do too. And you know, when I was talking with my book designer about how we're trying to make this book have some magic for me, because I was like, I I want a cover that makes me laugh or smile or makes me think. And we came up with this idea of starting the book on the cover which is so right for a book called How to Begin. I was like, that's it. We've already won because this book cover is amazing. So yeah, thank you. It is. And so, you know, so many books, um, they make you do a lot of work before you actually get into the, the meat of the book. And it was, it was so refreshing. We, we won't start off too meta with the book. Maybe we'll get to some of that stuff <laughs> as we go on. <laughs> well, but it speaks, um, to, um, it, it speaks to something that's important, I think, for those of us who are in this world of self-help and self-development and self-growth, but particularly for teachers in this world, which I know a lot of us are. And for me, I have a very foundational design principle, which is what's the least I can teach that would be the most useful. Mm. And it kind of connects to, you know, you picking up some books and going, there's a lot of stuff here. <laughs> there are a lot of words here that I wish weren't the words in this book um, because a lot of people fill out their, their books. And for me, I'm always like, how do I make this as lean as possible, as short as possible? Because I, I, I want to make this book compelling. I want people to go, I should read the next sentence now and then the next paragraph. Mm. And I think that requires a degree of ruthlessness around what you cut out and you leave out so that you can offer up the thing that feels like the most, it sounds like I'm blowing my own horn here, but like I'm trying to get a, a precisely cut gem to offer to the world. Mm. Yeah, I love that. This is, I was actually going to, I was going to ask you about this later um, in the conversation, but it's, it's perfect right now. You've got, towards the end of the book, you, you, you sort of say explicitly, when I write a book, I keep reminding myself, write the shortest book you can that's still useful. Yeah. So let's, let's go a little deeper on that. Yeah. What would you say, there's a lot of different people who write books, all sorts of different types of books. Um, but like, what do you, having written at least a few books so far, yeah. what do you think you know specifically about writing useful books? that a lot of people don't. Cause I think that's, a, that's an important qualifier there. Mm, um, yeah. What have you kind of learned about what makes a book actually useful? It's a really nice question. 
I, I, here's how I think about it. And, you know, this is just one, one person's answer. So it's not the truth, but it's something. Um, I'm always suspicious of the first thing that I come up with <laughs> because it's almost certainly the same thing everybody else has come up with. So I always want to push it to the next, the next iteration of whatever that first thing is. Um, you know, I, I read a lot of stuff that just feels to me, I, I had an acronym in my head, taboo, true and bleedingly obvious. <laughs> I'm like, yep, mm -hmm. it's, I can't I argue with it, but I feel like I've heard it and seen it and read it before. What's the next iteration around that? Then I think there's, so it's, it's continuing to kind of, to use another metaphor, to knead the dough and keep working it. And there's that wonderful quote, you know, looking for simplicity on the other side of complexity. That that's mm -hmm. a big motivator for me, which is like, I want the stuff I write to have a robustness to it, but I want to I want her taking it from the simplistically obvious through the messy, confused, over-explained, overwritten, through to the other side where it's simplicity on the other side of complexity, and that feels like a, a goal that I have. Then, I do think. Um, it's really helpful to understand the purpose of your of a book. Um, and you've got two levels to think about it. One is, how is this a purpose for you in your life? Why are you writing this book in the first place? For some people, it's, I just want to have a book with my name on it. And I'm like, that's great. Some people, it's like, I want to have a best-selling book and make my fortune from a book. And I'm like, mm, good luck. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's not many people who managed to pull off that little miracle. Um, and then for me, it's around, I want to create something useful in the world that that if i'm honest about it it's like i kind of want to democratize coaching i want to shrink the coaching profession which i probably shouldn't say out loud because i want a lot of people to go oh i can do this work by myself so that if you end up working with a therapist or with a coach you're working on the harder stuff the real stuff the juicier stuff that a book can't begin the process for so I'm trying to create something that's of service there. And then I think there's just something about what does it take to try and find your voice around it? And, you know, that's a, um, I just think sometimes many books I read, I'm like, I can't really tell you're different from other books that I've read. And the ones that books that I love, I'm like, you sound like a cool person. I like to sit down at, dinner with you and talk to you about this because my, my sense of who you are is coming through the page. I just did a, a podcast interview with a guy called Brian Christian, who wrote a book called Algorithms to Live By. And he's like, you are just an interesting man. And that comes across in your writing and it comes across in my conversation with you. And, you know, he, he, when I asked him to introduce himself on my podcast, he's like, I'm a writer. And I'm like, I love that you're a writer. You're a scientist, but you're a writer. And you've worked to find a full expression of who you are in and how you're kind of a little different in the world. I'm not sure that was very coherent, Nick. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, totally. And, and early on, you used the metaphor of uh, work, like kneading dough, right? That a, mm. a book has this process of you're kind of working the, the dough. Yeah. Yeah. But there, but following this metaphor, there's the risk of overworking. And I, I feel like a lot of books feel overworked oh, to, yeah. me, to where they are. Maybe they are fairly concise, mm. but they, they don't have a lot of, uh, spirit or kind of character or, or juice to them. So how do you, yeah, that's nice. Writing, how, some... how do you, how do you sort of maintain that, um, concision, like working something distilling, yeah. but also having it feel alive and sort of colorful and not, not, not overworked. How do you think about that process? I guess when you're writing, 
Yeah. So I think I probably, I'm, I'm working the idea and the core concept in the sense that, you know, with the coaching habit book, for instance, I went through a bazillion iterations of how many questions, which questions, in which order. And that's where I'm, that's where I'm kneading the dough. I'm like, what are, the, what are these things? <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, I kept sketching out the shape of this book. And sometimes there would be six and sometimes five and sometimes 25. And I'd move the order of the questions around. And I just kept writing the same thing over and over again until I was so bored with myself. <laughs> I was like, I just, I think this is it. I think I've landed on the, the structure of this book that feels most powerful. So that felt like it was worth really working down to the nubs. And then um, I'm trying to write with a lightness of touch and a sense of humor, and a sense of play. That's because that's the voice I'm aspiring towards. And a sense of kind of like slightly provocation and something personal as well. Um, because I agree that there's a way that um, business, uh, certainly business books is like, I'm trying to write this in a serious business book, authory voice, or it's just a self-help. No, no humor allowed here at all. Let's be very serious because it's about self-help. And I'm like, this stuff is way too important to be humorless around. Yeah, absolutely. And that's it, characteristic of, of your book is it's got a great, I feel like it's got momentum to it. You know, it's, it's, it's serious. I mean, the topic couldn't be more weighty. You know, what, <laughs> right. what are you actually going to do with your life? You know, what's the yeah. important, worthy goal? And we're, we'll get into that. Um, but it's got such a lightness and a briskness to it where so many books, I feel like I'm, I'm working hard against the book to yeah. get at the good stuff in the book. Um, and so that's, a, it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear. And you mentioned working with a designer, like working with a book yeah. designer as well. But clearly you've thought about not just the content of the book, but the, the, the form of it and, and sort of the, the experience of actually reading it. No? I, I think about it a lot because I think lots of books are a bit intimidating to pick up. As soon as you pick them up, there's too many words on the page and th there's not enough white space and oxygen mm -hmm. in the book. So it, it becomes intimidating before you, you even get started on it. Um, but thank you for the, thanks for the saying around the momentum. Um, it, part of what I'm realizing in this conversation with you is, you know, I'm honestly trying to write the books that I would like to read. Mm -hmm. And I'm a pretty terrible audience. <laughs> like when I get, <laughs> when I'm being taught something, facilitated by something, I have this, kind of, this arrogance of going, like if it's not a good facilitator, I'm like, look, let me run this class for you because I don't even know what the topic is, but I can, I can structure it just to make it more interesting for everybody because you're killing all of us here. And <laughs> sometimes I read books where I feel the same. I'm like, oh man, you know what? I wish, can I, I rewrite your book for you? Because I can do this in a way and make it just a little more effervescent and a little more generous, a little more accessible for people. And you've kind of somehow... It, it deadened it. <laughs> um, and, and I do think about the design a lot. I mean, this really struck home with the coaching habit. You know, when I worked with Peter, the designer, and I said, look, Peter, this is the scenario. A busy woman, she's a senior manager or a director in an organization. She walks into the bookstore in the airport. Uh, she's got the usual table of books in front of her. Um, the cover catches her attention. She picks it up and... Uh, as soon as she flicks through the pages, she goes, oh, this, this looks enticing to me. And the book is small enough that I can just put it in my purse and it's not going to weigh me down and I can carry it easily. And I can probably make a dent in it on the flight home. And we had this really clear scenario of who we were designing a book experience for. And then we tried to 
to live up to that in the, the, the feel of the book. Yeah, well, it, it certainly comes through and it, it's a good transition to getting into some of the content of the book, but, but starting again with form, you've got you in this book, you've written what is maybe my favorite kind of introduction to an introduction. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I'm going to read again. Your, this, this is the first uh, paragraph is lovely. of the introduction yeah. to your book, which I just, I fell in love with right away. So it, it starts like this. When I first met Marcella, we'd both arrived at Oxford University to study. She'd gone from being a high school dropout to winning a scholarship to do a PhD there. I know, pretty cool. Tacked to the door in her dorm room was a scrap of paper and on it was printed, life is not a dress rehearsal. Reader, I married her. <laughs> I mean, mic drop, right? That is such a compelling introduction. Like how can Dang. you not just want to keep reading, you know, cancel all your meetings and just like keep reading, right? Oh, so, that was so cool to a, hear you read that. Thank you. The book is new, newly out in the world. So it's still fresh for me. And I loved hearing that. So thank you for reading it. Yeah. You, well, you're very welcome. And I, I want to just give people a sense of like, I mean, even just your writing, just the way you structure your writing, I think has kind of a a, a dynamism to it. You're talking about weighty things, but it's got a lightness and it. it's got kind of a momentum. Um, yeah. But you, but you go on after that, that this, this life is not a dress rehearsal quote that you're, you're now have had kind of tacked on her door. This really gets at kind of the core theme of the book, right? Which is, and you've got this great phrase for it, which is being doubly ambitious with our lives. Right. Yeah. So can you, can you unpack that a little bit about what, sort of what, what that means to you being doubly ambitious? Yeah. I wrote the book hoping people would be ambitious for themselves and ambitious for the world. And I think that that ambition that sometimes never gets awakened in us at all, or sometimes it does, but then it gets kind of just chipped away by the, the weight of the world and the weight of living an everyday life in the world. Um, and so, first of all, it's like, how do you be ambitious for yourself? You know, who are you? Who do you seek to be? <laughs> who do you seek to, what do you seek to do in this world? What's the kind of full expression of the very best of who you are? So this is classic mm -hmm. self-help, self-development stuff for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a straight white overeducated guy. So I actually kind of got dealt a bunch of cards that helped me be ambitious or connect to ambition. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people who hear stories right from the start, which is like, you can't do that. And who are you to even think mm -hmm. that you should? So, but, you know, I know a bunch of straight, white, overeducated guys who've stopped being ambitious for themselves because they're like, I'm just trying to pay a mortgage and look after some kids and, you know, do, do work and not fail at that. And so part of it's around, you know, how do I light up something that's in you? Um, because, because I think our world benefits if we unlock our greatness. And that's what ambitious for yourself is. But I, want, I don't want it just to be a self-development exercise. Um, because, you know, you get into the worst of self-development, which is like, have a bigger car and have a bigger house and be more fully yoga expressed. And I'm like, that's okay if you want that. But it's got to be more than that. It's got to be, how are you contributing to the world? And, you know, there's a, a, a woman I quote in the book, Jacqueline Novogratz, who uh, founder of um, kind of like a nonprofit venture capital firm called Acumen. Uh, and her most recent book is called a manifesto for a moral revolution. And, uh, and she has a Ted talk about this as well. So if you look up Jacqueline Novogratz and Ted, you'll find her. And there's a phrase there, which I just thought was spot on. She says, how do you, or what if we could give more to the world than we take? Mm. Uh, and I love that because that is uh, a call 
to be ambitious for the world, it's not it's scalable. So it works at whatever scale you want to play at. That can be about how you contribute to your family or your neighborhood or your community or your audience or your team or your, you know, it's like whatever your world is, you can figure out how to give more to that world than you take. And I just thought, you know, if I could help more people do that, then that makes my world better. <laughs> and my niece, I don't have kids myself, but my nieces and nephews world better. And I, and I kind of want that because, you know, there's a bunch of things making a bunch of people, me included, pretty anxious about the world at the moment. Yeah, let's. So I, I love that quote, and you have a, you have several other quotes that are that are similar in nature, and really, I think they're they're just a reflection of the the spirit of your book. That I I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to write up a question that kind of encapsulated what what it's been feeling, and I totally failed. And so I'm just going to stumble <laughs> my way into this question. I love that. No, it's perfect. <laughs> but one of the one of the undertones of your one of the things your, your, the book successfully does, I think, is it, it feels very empowering at the end of the day. Like it makes mm. me think like, I don't know, big worthy goal, my ambitious for my, my life purpose. It's kind of intimidating, right? Yeah. Um, but at the end of the book, there's, it's like a hell yeah, you know, it's kind <laughs> of the, at least my sort of takeaway. Yeah, now, lovely. But it, but it strikes me though, that this, this idea of talking about ambition and your big worthy goal right off yeah. the bat, it's a little risky, right? Because that's a big word. Ambition's a big kind of scary word. And it's got a lot yeah. of, um, I think a lot of negative connotations with, with yeah. people. Is, is that something you thought about? Take that word. Let's start with that word specifically ambitious. Yeah. How, was that a struggle for you thinking like how you kind of teed that up? Cause I, yeah, I feel like it's a, it's, I feel like you pulled it off, but it's, it's risky. Well, I mean, you could say the same about worthy, both ambition mm -hmm. and worthy show up with baggage <laughs> attached yeah. which is like yep. when you think of somebody who's ambitious who are you thinking of and you're like oh, i'm not the person i want to be i don't want to be that person and worthy can show up with a kind of moral righteousness um right. which is not what this is about either the worthy piece is more about how do you make this worth your life you know the time mm. and the resource and the focus and all of who you are how do you make it worth your life um yeah you know nick i i did think about that i I'm hoping that this reclaims ambition for kind of ordinary people. <laughs> if it was like that, you know, um, you know, part of what I've tried to do in this book is, is present this kind of, kind of slightly lofty terms and then make them feel human as you go through the work of kind of figuring it out for you. So, you know, when we talk about a worthy goal where people might go immediately, it's like, does this mean I have to, have a space shuttle and fly in space or go to Mars, or does it mean I have to liberate a small country or a large country, or, you know, do I need to leave a lead a movement to, to the UN? You know, it's kind of those big things where we're like, who, who does that? It's like very few people. Um, but it is around um, just watching myself actually just go, I don't, I'm not sure I'm totally con contributing to the world in the way that I would like. And, you know, I live in a Toronto and I'm like, how could I just contribute to my neighborhood in a way that felt generous and a, a better expression of who I am? So um, I'm trying to make ambition softer, but still important and resonant for people, I guess. Yeah. And I, I would, we'll leave it up to the future readers to, to determine whether that's worked. <laughs> that's I, right. I certainly think you pulled it off. Um, Thank you. The, the other, the other word before, and we are going to, I promise we are going to dive into for people listening, we are going to dive into some of the actual kind of nitty gritty and specifics, but another word that, that I think 
is runs throughout the book, either explicitly or sort of in spirit, is the idea of obligation. Mm. And so th- there's there's two quotes that you you have in the book. You you, you quote two two of my favorite quotes. Um, there's the the Mary Oliver quote from from Summer's Day, which is tell yeah. me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Right? <laughs> so good. And the, so good. <laughs> Somehow he's, this is really- an extraordinary poet. I've been rereading oh some of her stuff and I'm like, man, you speaking of mic drops, she's just like, she's just kept writing poems that have a extraordinary lyrical humanity to them. It's just amazing. Yeah. She's, in, she's incredible. And then there's this Maya Angelou quote too, which is, but to grow up costs the earth, the earth. It means you take responsibility for the time you take up. Yeah. So one of these things that, that both of these quotes, sort of the spirit of them is they're, they're inspiring. Right. And, and I think that's the first thing that hits us, but, yeah. but they're, they're also underneath the surface. There is this sense of like responsibility and obligation, like that Mary sure. quote, what, what is it you plan to do with this really like this gift, this precious gift that you've been given? Yeah. Like you have an obligation to, yeah, it's to, not, are you the, planning the, on doing anything? It's like, no, what are you planning on doing? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that seems to me like another, um, it's a hard thing. It, it, what you want to make, you want to make this idea of ambition and, and sort of a worthy goal um, yeah. approachable for people and, and human and, and ordinary in a way and accessible, but also there's a gravity to it, right? Like, no, there, there right. is a lot at stake. Thank you for, for saying that so beautifully. Um, one of the first mentors I had in you know, a remote mentor, you know, somebody whose work I, I looked up to is a, a guy called Peter Block. Um, he's best known in the kind of organizational development world. Um, sure. he wrote a book called flawless consulting, which sold a bajillion copies back in the eighties, I guess, in nineties. Um, and he, he, his work is influenced by philosophy and existentialism in particular, and I once heard him say he thought his work was giving people responsibility for their own freedom. And that to me is a, actually puts, <laughs> you know, chills up my spine as I say it and think about it because there's so much in that simple throwaway line from Peter. Peter. Um, it's an acknowledgement of freedom, first of all, which is we are in a place where we get to make choices and you're know, in, in very, Victor Frankl, man's search for meaning sort of way, which is like, we all have our different circumstances, but we are always at choice. Um, and for a long time, you know, for 20 years now, I've, I've articulated a kind of personal mission of mine around giving people, uh, infecting a billion people with the possibility virus. Now, this sounded better 20 years ago before there was a global pandemic and, and the whole <laughs> infecting people with a virus became less cool. Right. right. Um, <laughs> But, but the idea for me in that statement was um, I, can't, I can't touch a billion people, but there's an ambition to that around how do I create stuff that spreads without me? That's the, the virus metaphor. And the possibility virus is like, how do I help people see that there are possibilities, that they are at choice? And how do I help them through whatever way I can to make the braver, bolder choice? And so... What I like about Block's phrase there, give people responsibility for their own freedom, is it says you have freedom, so recognize that and know that as you see that you have choice, you have responsibility to make choice, to make you have responsibility to make the braver, bolder choice. Because as you said, there's a lot at stake here, like humanity. Mm. So I, um, 
you know, I walk this line all the time, Nick, uh, just in my own life and with the people who I work close, more closely with, which is like trying to find the right balance between this ambition and this drive and this kindness and this presence and this gentleness. You know, it's like, what can you control? What can you influence? What, what, what do you strive for? What do you work on on a small day-by-day basis? You know, I, the, 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 all the interesting things of life exist in this kind of tension with each other. <laughs> There's no yeah. simple formula to it. It's all about how do you how do you navigate between some irreconcilable but important polarities. I love it. And something I think a lot about as a therapist is there there's this tension between being present with people and validating in their struggles, right? In, right. in the things they're struggling with their depression, anxiety, hopelessness, like whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um but it, there's this strange paradox where if you if you only stay in that, it ends up being disempowering, right? And so it's right. how do you walk that line of helping people to see, to acknowledge and validate the struggle, the hard stuff, the the yeah. limitations, but to see beyond it toward the possibility in an empowering way. And and one of the things I find really fascinating, especially reflecting on your book, is that part of empowering people beyond the struggle is. Yeah. is giving them a sense of the obligation, the weight, the weightiness. That's the really nice. Right. It, it, but it, it's a little, it's counterintuitive. You, you don't, you feel people are already weighed down. Why do I want to give them more of a sense of obligation? Right. Like, right. So that's, that's a, again, risky, right? This is delicate. Yeah, How do we do it, this? It, it is. Um, you know, I just taught a small class um, on overwhelm because some people who are mm. tackling this idea of worthy goals, are like, I'm, <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. It's too much. And I'm like, and so I, here's how I tried to talk about how to think about overwhelm and how to manage it. it and hopefully it's helpful for people. I went, look, if you've, got a, if you've got something that you're striving for, around that you've got three things that are in tension with each other and balance with each other. One is, and within each one of those three, there's a tension, I think, as well. So the first is like, so be realistic. You know, part of overwhelm comes from you, you think you can do more than you can. And so you hit that moment where I just have too much to do. Um, but you're trying, just as you're saying, Nick, trying to be, well, how much is not enough <laughs> and how much is just a bit too much? And how do you find the right kind of conversation between that? And part of it is around being re- realistic around, um, working in small blocks. You know, the way I work is I work in a six week cycle. So I'm like, what's realistic for me to do this six weeks mm. and some six weeks I have more capacity and other weeks, six week blocks, I don't have that much capacity because I've got too much other stuff going on. Um, so, but I try and be realistic about what I can do in that period of time. Um, then there's a piece around being consistent, uh, which is like, how do you keep showing up and doing the work? But how do you also um, not make it purely habitual? where it's a kind of unconscious response. How do you make it a, a practice so you're, you're mindful as you keep showing up and doing the work, even as you keep showing up and doing some of the mundane work? And then the third piece was around having grace. So how do you be kind to yourself and, and not berate yourself for the struggle and for failing, but how do you not let yourself off the hook so that you're, you've... Um, you've always got a reason not to, to strive and not to struggle and not to fail. And, you know, none of that is a simple, none of those are simple answers, but sometimes it's helpful to understand what to be aware of so that you can 
put yourself in the place you want to be in terms of the work you want to do. I love that. So realism, consistency, and grace. I think so. Nice, nice framework. I just okay, made it up. I made it up this morning. So it like may or may not be true. Maybe yeah, by the time people listen to this, I may have gone, no, not definitely not that. But anyway, it's what's it's what's real for me today as we talk. Let me pick on one little thing that you talked about working in six-week kind of intervals. This is yeah. fascinating to me. I, I I have I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this, but it, it keeps popping up, which is that the idea of kind of working in seasons or or injecting some kind of seasonality into, into our lives more than there already is. Um, tell me a little bit more about this six week. How did you stumble upon this and, and yeah. how's it going? I, I'm curious about this. Tell me more. Yeah. I, I've been thinking about it for a long time. I mean, uh, you know, this whole, how do you, how do you do the work you need to do? And the, the person who wrote the very first blurb for the very first book I wrote um, like 14 or 15 years ago was David Allen, who Hmm. Um, wow. known for his getting things done is a great story. Actually, I, I was even less well-known than I am now. I have this book that I'm self-publishing and I'm like, okay, what, what do people do when they publish? How do they, how do people find out about books? They're like, Oh, you get somebody famous to blurb it. So I'm like, I okay, I don't know anybody famous. Um, so I went to my bookshelf and at the time it was kind of alphabetical, I guess, by author. So the first book was this Getting Things Done book by David Allen. And I'm like, okay, I haven't read this, but somebody told me it was good. So I, I Googled David Allen, Getting Things Done, and got there was a phone number at the bottom of this webpage. Wow. So I dialed the phone number. And before it's rung once, the phone gets picked up and it's like, hello, David Allen here. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh man, I haven't, I haven't got a pitch. I haven't thought this through. I've just acted on something. Um, but anyway, I stumbled around. He, he, I sent him the book. He wrote a nice blurb for it. We got to know each other a little bit after that. But just to say, it's like since then, I mean, so that's 15 years ago. I've been trying to go, how do you, how do you work this stuff? And I came across this uh, getting things done, uh, this six-week idea. Um, reading about Basecamp, um, mm -hmm. you know, Basecamp is a bit of a kind of tech darling. There's a the founder is a guy called Jason Fried or Fried, who wrote a book called Rework, which is kind of interesting, mm -hmm. and another book called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Um, and they're a kind of project management software, and they've got an email service out now. But their chief technology officer um, wrote a book called Shape Up. And in fact, if you Google shape up Basecamp, it'll take you to a free PDF that you can get of the book. You can order a print copy if you want it, but you can just read the, the PDF. And it kind of says, this is how we ship work at Basecamp. And they basically work in a six-week cycle, six weeks on, two weeks off. And the mm -hmm. two weeks is, is for R&R and tidying stuff up and sorting out loose ends and then you basically, you, as I understand it, you take your, what you want to do in the next six weeks and you pitch it to the powers that be, and they give you permission to, to work on it. And then you go for it for six weeks. Mm. And what I like about this is um, how it creates miniature beginning points and ending points so that you've got small cycles of work in the bigger project that you're doing. But I also like that, you know, in six weeks, you can get a lot done. And in six weeks, if you, 
if it's an utter failure and you wasted all that time, it's only six weeks, which it doesn't feel too big an opportunity cost. Interesting. So for me, it's got that right balance of, you know, how do you, how do you learn how much you can do in six weeks and how do you adjust it to what your next six weeks are about? And then you get to kind of commit to something without second guessing it. You're just like, this is what I'm going to go for. I'm going to work really hard on this for the next six weeks. Like my six week, I'm at, we, my, uh, the, my team and I, we call these chapters. And so this is mm. uh, week five of a six week chapter. And my only focus for this chapter has been hiring a, a person and getting a system or two built. And I'm about done. I'm, I'm, we haven't hired the person yet, but we've got a job thing out in the world. And just giving myself permission to say, These are the, this is the main thing to do <laughs> this six weeks. And that's what I put front and center. Um, just really helps me not overthink my already overcomplicated life. Nice. I love it. I feel like we could talk for hours just about that whole thing. I've got so many ideas uh, buzzing around. <laughs> but let's sort of transition into, so we, we brought up this term kind of worthy goals. And mm. if you think about those, those words I read on the cover, you know, um, start doing something that matters. A lot of us have this like instinct in us that like, yes, there's more. I, I do have this kind of latent ambition, but, yeah, yeah. but uh, what, <laughs> right? Like, but what? yes, but, um, so you've got a very kind of helpful, simple framework for, for thinking about the worthy goals. Um, yeah. Can you, you describe that worthy goals are, and you have sort of three uh, category um, adjectives to kind of describe yeah. them. They're thrilling, important, and daunting. And you yeah. describe this, I love this, the, the primary colors of how <laughs> you paint your ambition. It's great. Right. It's awesome. Right. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So can, can you briefly like walk through yeah. those three? In, in like I will. Why? Yeah. I, I, I'm going to take a, a, a shortest of detour just to have a little whine about how bad goal setting is at the moment because smart goals, and I didn't really realize this until I started writing this book, but I'm just like, I hate smart goals. I hate them <laughs> <laughs> because, and it's the acronym that everybody knows about goals. But first right. of all, nobody quite knows what smart stands for. Everybody's got slightly different words involved in the acronym. And secondly, when you think about it, you know, they're specific, they're measurable reducible, they're timely. It's all about the containing of the goals. It's a very bureaucratic term, which is like, we're just going to make these safe for everybody. And if you have the wrong goal, a smart goal is just going to be polishing a turd. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how smart it is or <laughs> measurable or timely if you've got the wrong goal. And then there's other things that are, and, and I feel the same a bit with OKRs. OKRs are a bit better, but Everything I know, everybody I know who's working with OKRs, you know, objective key results, they're overwhelmed by them. It's more a, it's more a, a way an organization keeps people in, 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 in line in terms of that. The one acronym that seems to be more ambitious is BHAG from Jim Collins, Big Hairy Audacious Goal. Ugliest sounding acronym in the, in the entire world, BHAG. Um, but it also BHAG doesn't, there aren't many people who go, here's my BHAG. Most people go, here's my organization's BHAG or my team's BHAG. Yes. So I'm like, let's make it ambitious and human. So thrilling, important, and daunting. So really quickly, thrilling, does this light you up? Do you care about it? Do you get excited about it? Does it actually mean something for you? And this works as a counter to uh, the, the way that we can somehow inherit goals, you know, obligations. Oh, I should be doing this. Yeah. I feel like, you know, for me to be successful, this is the next thing I have to do. That thing. Thrilling is just like, you know what? Is there some juice in this for you? But just as we were saying before about 
not wanting to just be self-help for the sake of just you. Important is how does it serve the world? Does it give more to the world than it takes? Does it leave the world, your world, in a bit of a better place than, than it might otherwise be? And then daunting is how do you keep learning? How do you keep growing from this? You know, uh, how do you, if you know how to start something, but you don't really know how to finish it, it might be the right type of daunting for you. Because, you know, for, when I was young and people go, I can't teach an old dog new tricks. I'm like, ah, that might be true. I don't know. Luckily, I'm not an old dog. <laughs> Suddenly I become like, I'm now in my mid fifties or early fifties or something. And I'm like, I'm kind of becoming a bit of an old dog. God damn it. I will, I will definitely keep learning. I will, I want new tricks. So for me, the daunting pieces, it, and, and, you know, there's good research that says people who age well, the key thing is they keep learning. They keep being hungry for that next thing growth. It's not about, can you keep doing crosswords? It's can you keep learning new stuff? So daunting is how do you not plateau? How do you not stagnate? How do you find the edge of your competence and your confidence and your sense of self and push beyond that and expand that? Because that's, you know, the, the emotional heart of this book, Nick, is we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. And so the daunting is this, claim to say you're up for a hard thing. Let's talk about that. I, I had that in my notes to, to talk to you about, because I really, it, it, it's, it engages with a dialogue that you hear a lot, I think, when it comes to doing important things. And there, the, the two polarities I typically hear this framed as is there's the sort of um, follow your passion idea, which is kind of the Disney movie. Like you discover <laughs> something within you and then that propels you forward to yeah. do something that's great for you and the world and all that kind of stuff. Right. And then there's the, the backlash to that, which is that's a bunch of romantic nonsense. What you really do is you get good at something. You develop mm. rare, valuable skills. And as a byproduct of that, you will find your passion, but you start with skills. And this is a very kind of Cal Newport-y um, yes, approach. Is. And this is a, yeah. a little bit more now, how do you situate, I, I feel like your, your take of uh, sort of doing difficult things, it, it's a little different than both of those. So how do you see your, how do you situate yourself in those yeah. two kind of, in that framework? It's a very helpful distinction. Uh, and I've never heard it said that I, I'm slightly different from both of those. And I'm like, that's true. I'm definitely not follow your passion. Um, in part because I'm just not a passionate guy. So if I had to follow my passion, I wouldn't know what to follow. Because I'm like, what, am I passionate about this? Yeah, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not disinterested, sure. but Maybe. I'm kind of like, I, I don't know, I, I, I dabble in a whole bunch of stuff without being fully passionate by anything. And I also think that if you're, if you're lucky to have something that you're passionate about, there's a way that you, you, you break that if you overly pursue mm -hmm. your passion. It's like, it's, it's interesting, this kind of hunting metaphor. Well, here's something delicate and beautiful. Let's pursue it with a spear. <laughs> you know, there's that line by from from Yates, and I'll get this wrong, but it's like, you know, let me spread my cloak in front of you. Tread carefully on my cloak because this is the cloak of my dreams. And mm -hmm. it feels like pursuing. And I, I got that wrong. <laughs> Yates has said it so much better than I did, but there's some. It's it, you get the sense of it. Um, and so I'm not one for pursuing the passion, just because passion is not actually a word that that resonates a whole lot for me. I do think that what is interesting and the other way of framing it is, you know, work hard, see what shows up and develop an interesting mix of things. And, and then 
that extract value. <laughs> I'm like, ah, the whole extracting value is also a kind of like a metaphor that I don't get super excited about. Um, so I do think there's something around um, what is fulfilling for you is an emergent phenomena. It's a, you are a complex system. You're not a machine. You're a complex system. So when you push into something, it's not totally clear what emerges. And that happens on two levels. Once you start pursuing a worthy goal, it's not actually clear where you're going to end up. It might be that you cross the line and you get your worthy goal. But actually, for lots of people, when they start doing the worthy goal, what becomes the goal actually shifts and changes and, and, and evolves itself. It's, it's, in some ways, it's a little bit of a misdirection of the book, which is like, you know, the first section is spend this time figuring out what a worthy goal might be for you. Go through drafts and figure out it's really important and daunting. But my real goal is to get you on the journey, not to get you um, on over the finish line. It's, not how, to, it's yeah. not how to finish, it's how to begin. That's what I'm interested in. And not only does the goal become emergent, but I think you become emergent. You know, who you are as you meet, you step out on this unknown path and you step into the unknown a bit and you explore the edges. It's like what happens to you is you change and you evolve and you kind of unlock the next version of, of who you might be, that kind of sense of the future you. You know, there's this concept of change, um, which I learned from... Ron Heifetz, first of all, a Harvard professor, he talks about technical change and adaptive change. And then that kind of got picked up and rewritten about in a book called Immunity Change by um, Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy. And kind of entangled in all of that, that idea about change is a sense of easy change. This is my language. Easy change is when you kind of add stuff to who you are already. You know, and it's like, mm -hmm. it's additive. You learn a bit, you practice a bit, you get better at it. And you're like, okay, it's like, it's a bit like downloading an app on your phone. You're like, I'm a, I'm a little bit smarter because I've got this app that I actually use on my phone and it's helpful for that. But we've all had apps we've downloaded on our phone that we, we don't use and it doesn't solve the problem for us. And we're like, ah, oh, what's going on? And for me, that's more this hard change, which is like, I need to be, a, I don't need to be additive. I need to be transformative. I don't need a new app. I need a new operating system. And I think that once you do this work around uh, a worthy goal, it gives you a chance to be in that transformative place. And so, Nick, you know, a lot of what's most interesting for me is how do I unlock the best of a person <laughs> rather than what's the goal that they're pursuing, whether it's hunting passion or whether it's extracting the rare, the rare minerals of their odd combination of skills and experience. Yeah, it's, I, I love this language. It's my, one of my favorite things about, about this book and hearing you talk is how um, you're, such a, you're such a good curator of people and ideas and language and metaphors. And I just, I love that. Um, <laughs> Thanks. But, but this, so the, the second part, once you've sort of thought through some possibilities yeah. for, the, for the, yeah. the goal, right? The second part is committing actually yeah. kind of getting started. But I, I love the language you talk about this <laughs> and right, right off the bat, you, you say something like, you know, once you've started, once you've defined your worthy goal, this is the time when you settle into your commitment, right? Now, this is, this strikes me as almost kind of radical because whenever, typically when we hear about committing to something, you know, it's, it's January 1st and I've committed to going to the gym five days a week. And yeah. it's very, the language and, and the spirit around commitment is it always strikes me as very harsh. It's pretty intense, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like, 
gritting and like white knuckle. Throw up all the go, fluorescent lighting, and you're like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly. But you you totally flip that, and you, you use this phrase of settling in to your commitment. Yeah, uh, I I think that is brilliant, and and but again, kind of radical. But so talk a little bit about that, like how you came yeah. to that and why why you think it's important to almost like relax your way into commitment rather than uh, intensify your way into commitment. I, I think this second section of the book is the most radical. Um, it was the hardest to write to try and figure out what I meant by this. So often when you, when, when you set a goal, your natural next action is like, right, let's go then. <laughs> We've got something, pursue it or whatever the metaphor is that you, you want. And we often haven't really thought through what the implications of commitment really are. So we haven't really, what, what you're expressing when you go, let's go is determination rather than commitment. And determination runs out <laughs> soon enough. Whereas getting a more nuanced understanding of, are you fully committed to this? And what does commitment really mean? And what are the consequences of commitment? Mean that if you do choose to say yes to this, there's a better chance of you staying on the path and continuing to do the work rather than getting knocked off the journey. The, the starting point for the sense of a commitment is just to acknowledge the struggle that you've already had doing something like this. And, you know, because almost certainly the worthy goal you're setting isn't written on a fresh sheet of paper. <laughs> There's other stuff that's been there and you've drafted and scratched it out and tried it and you're like, oh, here I go again. Um, so there's a way just to kind of go, this is interesting. I've tried stuff like this before and what's worked and what hasn't worked. And then the other thing to notice is how quickly you start colluding with yourself to start avoiding this goal. <laughs> and it's like, yes. uh, it's, it's so annoying to, to find this. And this was really influenced by this uh, uh, immunity to change book I was telling you about earlier. I'm like, I remember setting a worthy goal years ago, or like, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, God damn it, I'm going to build a team around me to actually help me elevate my work. Mm. And honestly, I knew everything technically about how to build a team. I mean, I've, I, I was literally teaching classes in universities on how to build a high functioning team, <laughs> whilst not being able to have a high functioning team myself. I'm like, why is this so hard if I know how to do this? It's like, because I don't need an app, I need an operating system. And so there's just something useful to kind of go notice how you currently resist um, the, the very goal that you're setting yourself. And then that sets you up for a conversation to say, now you've articulated your goal, you, you know, in a very Yoda like way, you've got a choice yet, do it or don't do it. That's it. Um, and either one of those choices, or both of those choices, I should say, have both prizes and punishments as part of, of the choice. Yes. And we don't often look at if I didn't do this, what are the advantages to this? What are the prizes? What would I get from, from not taking this on? And the generic answer is you get to maintain the status quo. You get to maintain relationships and expectations of yourself and expectations others have of you. And you don't risk time and money and reputation. There's all sorts of ways that you stay safe by not taking this on. But the, the, the price you pay for not taking on is that you don't get to do this. You don't get to see the best version of yourself. And it's really useful just to surface that and go, how does that choice balance out for me? And then it's useful to ask the same question is if I fully committed to this goal, what are the prizes and what are the punishments? You know, what do I get from this? 
And again, you can articulate how, why you've chosen this, why is it thrilling, important and daunting, but you also get to look at what's at risk by you taking this on. Cause there is absolutely stuff at risk. It's a not inconsequential decision to take on a worthy goal. Stuff will be disrupted. Mm. But what you're really doing here, Nick, is you're acknowledging that the status quo has a, 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 a bigger gravity than you realize. We're more, we're, we, are, we are more attracted to the status quo than we might give ourselves credit for. And this just spends a bit of time going, how, what are you getting from the way things are right now? And what will you get and what's at risk if you take on this worthy goal? And if you, can, if you look at it and you go, the equation feels right, when you do cross the threshold, it's just a little more likely to, to have the intrinsic and extrinsic motivation to keep you going when things get hard. So fascinating. It makes me, I, so I have two kind of thoughts on, on that that I want to, I want to share and, and get to. The first is I, from a very young age, I remember my, my aunt, my mom's sister one time telling me that one of the most important events in her life was very seemingly mundane, but she was deciding where to go to college and mm. she was kind of stressed and anxious about it. And so my grandfather took her to a, a diner or a restaurant or something. And they sat down in a booth and he pulled out a piece of paper and they just, they made a little tea and then they made a pros and cons list. Yeah. And they just literally thought, thought through in a very ordinary matter of fact, what, what would be the benefits of going yeah. there and what would be the costs. And, the, yeah. and, and so it's, and I remember hearing that and thinking like, oh, that's sweet. Like, that's a nice yeah. story was my impression when I first heard that story. Yeah. But as I've gotten older, it, it really strikes me how profound that simple activity of honestly yeah. weighing up both the pros and cons right. of a decision to do something or not to do something. Right. Like it's, it's profound. It's, it's not rocket science, but it's, it's interesting yeah. how rarely we actually do that with big decisions. Yeah. And I, mean, I, I suspect there are all sorts of cognitive biases that come into play around this way. It's like, it's just much more comfortable not to overthink this, but just to plunge in and hope mm. for the best. But that's why most of us have plunged in and then, failed to make the progress that we were hoping for. Um, I do think this just gives you a little more nuanced understanding of just what you're taking on and allows you to just be a little more confident about why you'd want to pursue this. It's kind of, it's, it's basically, a, you know, as I asked the other day, you know, why you, you take all these risks and you're so adventurous around the stuff that you do. And I'm like, that's interesting. I don't think of myself, I think of myself as quite risk averse, but I do think, spend time going, what's really at risk here? What might I lose? Mm. And when I realize that what I've got at risk is some lost time and maybe some lost money and possibly some lost reputation, most of the time I'm like, I can lose that. <laughs> I don't have much of a reputation anyway. <laughs> I don't have that much money anyway. It's, it's a time, whatever. You know. And so that means that choices I make, which might feel risky on the outside, I'm like, I've actually thought about the risk. So in this section of the book, and I, you have to excuse me, I have to read another section from your book because I just I love it so much. <laughs> so in, in the, the chapter where we're talking about kind of weighing up the, the status quo, you, you start off the chapter with one of my favorite Gary Larson cartoons shows a moose slumped in a ratty armchair, watching television, can of beer in hand, paunch on display, <laughs> the acme of stuck in a rutness, and his moose wife hair and curlers stands with her hand over the phone's handset. It's the call of the wild. <laughs> <laughs> I look of the, of the million one things I'm very grateful to my parents for. 
Uh, one of them is that I feel like we always had Gary Larson cartoons around exactly. like little calendars with Gary around the house. Look, I, that, I, that I, image I, I'm always going to look incredible. better if I'm quoting Gary Larson because he's so yes. good. I'm like, if I get a little <laughs> bit of that reflective glory, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> so I love it. You read that, that out. That, that it's such a encapsulation. It, it's such a, it gives so much juiciness, vividness <laughs> to this idea you're talking about, right? Of, yeah. of how, how strong the status quo actually is. Yeah. And, and as a result, how much we ought to really consider that and reflect on it before we rush off to do something big and worthy and, and ambitious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. That's how I kind of interpret that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Not that there's anything wrong sitting on a sofa with a can of beer with a paunch on display. I mean, just to say, if that's you, <laughs> you're fine. You're awesome. You're doing great. <laughs> Well, precisely because there's nothing technically wrong with it is why right. we need to consider it, right? That's it's right. not some obvious evil that we need to yeah. run away from. It's got yeah. good elements to it. Exactly. Um, okay, Michael, final question for you. Um, you, you. You sort of unofficially dedicate this book uh, to your dad in the end yeah. of um, And there's a wonderful picture of, of you, your dad holding you when you're, you're really little. You're probably one. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, less than that probably, um, yeah. So let me ask you this. What, what do you think your dad understood about being a father, maybe more than, other, uh, than others or that other, other fathers uh, would do well to understand themselves? Well, that's a great, thank you for asking about my dad. He died um, as I was writing the book. And, and mm. one of the things that I love about this book is my dad got to read those last two pages, um, mm. which I wrote in Australia while, I, while he was on his deathbed. And it was my way of, of you know honoring him and saying goodbye to him and i'm being able to have my dad read it with my mum and me there it's just pretty amazing and you know part of what's great about that is it makes this with this book i go whatever happens to this book even if nobody buys it i've already won because i had that moment mm. with my dad I, I i don't have kids myself so like i i i'm a little loath to to jump in with advice on on fatherhood but i'll tell you the thing that is really clear with my dad is he just role modeled the values that he stood for around contribution and around um, a generosity of spirit and an utter integrity around how he showed up. He was never inconsistent. He never mm -hmm. told a falsehood and he never, he never really kind of sat us down and went, <laughs> here's how you live your life. He was an engineer and he never, he never sat me down and said, here's how you be practical around the house. So like, I can barely change a light bulb now. And I'm like, damn it, my dad's an engineer. How do I not know how to screw things together? I mean, I, I get beaten by Ikea. Um, but, um, you know, I've heard it said by other people and it feels like it might be true, which is kids don't listen to what you say, but they do watch you and they do absolutely understand what you do and a way to, to, show up in the world is to behave in a way that feels like you're in accordance to the best version of who you, who you are. And so, you know, with our kids, I'm trying to do that in a bunch of ways, the way I show up. And that's what my dad did for me as well. Michael, thank you so much. This has been just a really wonderful conversation. It's just a pleasure to get to actually meet you and chat in person yeah. for the first time. Thank you, Nick. I've Hopefully really enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Yeah. I, I so appreciate the, the thoughtfulness with which you've read and understood the book. It's been wonderful. Well, of course. And, and, and thank you. Um, and a book, again, the book is how to begin, start doing something that matters. So I would definitely encourage everyone to, to really check it out. I, 
I've loved it. I hope that's kind of, kind of come across. I don't talk about books on podcasts unless I actually <laughs> loved them and really enjoyed them. Um, yeah. but in, in addition to the, to the book, where, where can people go to learn more about you and, and all your sure. other work as well? Look, I mean, the, the book has its own little website, howtobegin.com, and there are some resources and stuff people can get there. My bigger website is just mbs.works, and there's a range of different things you can get there. Um, there's a little course called The Year of Living Brilliantly, which is like 52 interesting different teachers, different video every week for a year, which I thought was this brilliant marketing move. It's like, this would be so great. I'll get all these people onto my, my mailing list. And then I realized that I'm actually giving people a whole year's excellent content and too much of it, actually. So I'm like, ah, it's not as good a marketing tool as I thought, but it is a great, there are some wonderful teachers there. So that might be of interest to people. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.